uh, we are going to be going through the Bible. So if you don't have a nifty app or Wi-Fi, we, there's Wi-Fi around here, but good luck. If you can break the password of people in the neighborhood, you win a cookie. But um, there are pew Bibles around, blue Bibles. We invite you to grab one of those. We'll get you a page number here in a little bit. Um, just a few announcements for our regulars. We're having, we don't have these a lot, so I, I, I call it a congregational meeting, a church meeting afterwards. We're going to invite you to hang around. If you're a visitor and you want to subject yourself to that type of punishment, God bless. But, uh, and really, our meetings aren't that bad, are they? I don't know. Oh, it's going to be horrible? Because Larry's leading it, so that's why it will be bad. So uh, we wanted to announce that. Small groups are starting up. Uh, and just, I didn't have anything this yesterday. The, the men ordained that we will now be meeting on Wednesday nights, and we're going to try to meet this Wednesday night. That's what happens when you miss a day. You miss a lot. So, um, oh, yeah. Well, we'll get you there. There's Uber. 7 o'clock. Wednesday nights at Larry's house. This is Larry. Larry can raise his hand if you're a dude and you want to show up, do that. The ladies are going to start the next week, correct? Like, yes, maybe. We're trying to get off schedule, so if you have kids, you know, you know everybody can do the tag team handoff, so that'll be great, too. And I think that's the extent of the announcements I want to list. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this introduction is not that profound because if you look in other books around this in that Bible, you're going to see that they almost all start in the same way. Um, in the book of Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Colossians, it always starts with this guy named Paul and declaring himself to be an apostle, a follower of Jesus. Who is this Paul? And we're not going to dive deep into that because, seriously, I know people who have spent their whole lives in academic research looking at the person of Paul, trying to reconstruct who he is. I will say this. There are people who are skeptical of the Bible and skeptical of Christianity who like to look at Paul and say, Paul was just the guy who invented Christianity. And maybe if you've been in the church, you're unfamiliar with this. But because Paul is the writer of probably two-thirds of the New Testament, his epistles, his letter of instruction to other people has influenced us, even as churches today, more so than any other character. Even if you have a Catholic background, you might be like, no, St. Peter. You know, Peter was the most influential guy. But we know in the scope of human history, Paul was one of the most influential people who ever lived. And we have these collections of writings that he wrote. This is why some scholars say, look, he took a good story in Jesus, invented it, and ran with it. But the one thing whenever we come back to this is that we can't deny Paul's influence, but this is one of the reasons that I like the Bible. Because if you go back and read the story, we have the introduction story of Paul in the book of Acts. And we understand that Paul wasn't just this spiritual guy who said, I'm going to make a good religion. No, actually, he was somebody who persecuted Christianity in its earliest days. He was so passionate about his Jewish faith that he thought the Christians were the pagan believers who were taking God's word and, and perverting it. And therefore, he said, it's my job to kill all these people. And he was responsible for killing dozens of Christians in his early life until God worked in him, moved in him. And then he was persecuted because of his faith in Jesus. And the reason I point that out is that if you're going to say this guy contrived something like that, you would not expose his seedy background. 
You wouldn't be like, this is a guy who created a religion. No, his life was changed and transformed. And it's a little too simplistic to say it was just because he was trying to make a buck. And by the way, in, that, in those days, televangelists had not yet exist. TBN was not a channel, and therefore, there was no making a buck. Paul lived in abject poverty most of his life and um, ended up being persecuted for it. But just this little point of the introduction here in the first verse right here. Why does Paul, he's like, is he calling himself an apostle because he's bragging because of his role? And I'm going to say that it's not. What he's talking about here is that he has the authority to be able to speak to this. There were only a few apostles, and in the first century, apostles were key. And we believe, we, re, we don't see many apostles running around. I know some religious people who like to call themselves apostles, but if you look back to the Bible, every person that was apostle actually spent considerable time with Jesus himself. And that title is important because it puts him at a voice of God being able to speak to everybody. It doesn't mean that Paul then was a perfect person. It's like, he's the apostle. He can do no wrong. No, that's the beautiful thing about the Bible too. We read where sometimes Paul was just an arrogant jerk. And later he has to come to grips when he is not the ideal person that he needs to be for God. But there's an honesty when he says, look, I'm speaking to you as an authority. And again, in these times, one of the reasons that we flee from faith and religion is because we don't like the concept of authority, right? I don't want anybody telling me what to do, let alone this guy who's been dead a couple thousand years. But the point is, is that Paul's not just speaking his words. He's the mouthpiece for God. And that's why he'll be important to this entire book. The second thing we see there in the beginnings is the city, where the church is located. It's the city of Ephesus. And I don't know how familiar some of us are with ancient history. So, you know, I'm going to get a little geeky here with maps. That's what turns me on. You know, like... My anniversary, I buy the wife a map. It's one of these things. The ancient world was centered around the Mediterranean Sea. And the two yellow dots I have here, the dot to the right, is Jerusalem. We know it's a very popular city for Christianity, for Judaism. It was the center of the Christian world. And then the new center of the Christian world, at the kneecap of the boot of Italy, was where Rome was. And we talked about this in our men's group yesterday, how the goal of Acts is Paul getting to Rome so he can have this mouthpiece to tell the entire world about Jesus. At this point... This is, you know, about 20 years after Jesus died. So it's the first century AD. At this point, Christianity had started its slow spread over here. Within a few hundred years, it had populated basically everything around that blue body of water in the middle. The city of Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey, box for effect, and we'll go right in here. That body of water right there to the left of it is anybody, any geek geography people? The Aegean Sea, who was that? Was that you, Joe? Did you look in the map in the back of your Bible? You were just there. <laughs> There's Joe in a Speedo. That's a, sorry, I did that. Good for you. Did you go to Turkey? Is that your Turkey? Oh, that's your Greece. That's your Greece jersey on. You didn't go to Turkey, though. Okay, so this is modern-day Turkey, where the dot is is the city of Ephesus. Okay, and the city of Ephesus no longer exists as a city, but right outside of it, a city does exist. The, the history of the city is very interesting because you can see its location by the sea. It was a port city in the centuries before Jesus was born. It became such a popular port city that it became a center of influence. And it became the center of the Roman Empire. And actually, before that, Alexander the Great's Greco, uh, you know, um, Macedonian Empire. It became the center of Artemis worship 
for the world, okay? And so the reason that this was popular, and this is an aerial view, a Google Maps view, which seriously, I like, in prepping for this, I, I'm telling y'all, like, the way to my heart is through a map. Because I just spent, I'm like, just soaring over the earth and Google Earth. Anybody do that? Am I the only person that does it? Think we have a connection. But you can see this area right here, if you can see my red dot, that's where the ancient city was located. I have this overlay right here of where the ancient buildings were actually located. And the, the thing is, you know, there's really tiny words that I don't expect you all to see. But a couple things of note, which we'll see. The one thing that exists is this little half circle right here. That's an amphitheater that still exists today. And if you are familiar with the Bible and the book of Acts, we know that the Apostle Paul at one time started a ruckus. A ruckus, he says, in this amphitheater. The other thing I want to see is this little white area right up here. That was the port that came in from the Aegean Sea. Okay? And that's why you see how the city pushes right up to the port. But this is what happened in the decades preceding Jesus' birth. The port started to evaporate. There were mudslides. And it came to the point where no longer was Ephesus a big port city. We see this in America with cities, right? Like, you know, football is starting today. I see some of y'all representing. The city of Pittsburgh is a city that in this... If you're from there, I apologize. But in this church, you're allowed to loathe the city of Pittsburgh. God's punishment upon them. But Pittsburgh came to prominence as an industry town, right? A steel industry. And when that evaporated, they had to reinvent themselves and become a city something else. And if you know Pittsburgh today, it's growing and it's vibrant because of its tech scene. Like in its educational tech scene, it's growing. But here's the thing then for Ephesus is how it grew was by capitalizing on the worship of Artemis. Now, I'm going to show you a picture of Artemis, which we're all looking forward to. This was Artemis, known in the Roman realm as Diana. So if you're keeping your, you know, like, I knew I had this in high school mythology. This is Artemis, and what she is known for is, you can see, she's like, oh, she has a grenade belt across her chest. That is not what that is. That is actually her bosoms, plural. And you're like, well, that's more than there ought to be there. But that was supposed to be the point, is that she was known for, for not wearing a brassiere, but also just for all of those things. Why does she have all of these things? Because it was supposed to symbolize her fertility. And the reason that you worshipped Artemis was is that she was so bountiful that she would be able to provide for you. And in Ephesus... There was a large temple. This on the top left corner is a recreation of what that temple looked at. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the only thing left of it today is that one column that stands there. But you can go to this area where the temple sat. And Artemis worship was plentiful there. And as you can imagine then, Artemis worship was antithetical to the worship of God, the God of Christianity. So the new Christians in Ephesus were a minority. I mean, like, the size of the church in Ephesus was not much bigger than our church. Because you're like, no, they must have had big structures. No, it was a countercultural movement. So when the Apostle Paul is talking to the people in Ephesus, he's talking to these people that walk around every day who have this ardent faith in this Artemis goddess to take care of them. And, and last thing before I move on, if you read the book of Acts with Paul in Ephesus... The people that really want to kill Paul, because everywhere where Paul goes, people are like, well, he, he needs to die, which I've had that feeling. But Paul is not 
um, targeted by necessarily the Jewish leaders who are like, no, he's perverting our faith. He's targeted here by the people who are in the Artemis industry because he was bad for business for them. Okay, that's the background. Take that, put it in your mind as we're going to move on, Chris. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their, their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. Usually when you're reading the Bible, this is stuff you're like, that sounds just so churchy. I'm just going to skip that and move to the good stuff, right? Because you're like, doesn't he say the same thing over and over again? And whereas you and I have attention deficit disorder, the ancients would have poured over every word and they would have understood what Paul is doing here. So the first thing we need to look is the back end of all those things right there, verses 6 through 10. What he's doing in verses 6 through 10 is he's affirming the story, the narrative of their faith. What he's trying to say is that, hey, you Artemis worshipers, this is what it means when you say, I follow Jesus. And what this is, is a summation of the story of the gospel. And again, that's a church word I'm throwing at you. But when we talk about the gospel, it's just basically an old English phrase for the good news. Eungelion is the Greek word for it. So we translate it gospel. But basically, it's just the story of Jesus. It's the story of why they believe in Jesus. What Paul wants to reaffirm in them is that, hey, this is what it's about to follow Jesus. So if you take all those things that he talks about and try to just split them up, Um, You understand that he talks about glorious grace. What's grace? That's something that you receive. It's not something that you earn. That it's freely given. So you can't buy grace, right? Like there's nothing you can put into the offering box that is going to make you closer to God because he is doing that freely. That he loves us, okay? That's, by the way, that's a terminology that the people in Ephesus who worshiped Artemis did not understand at all. Artemis didn't love them. Artemis was somebody that they approached when it's like, hey, I need something. Talk to the lady with all the, the belt, right? God, though, is expressing this concept that he cares about those who follow him. That we're redeemed in his blood. That's this, the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. His death, his blood redeems us. It buys us back from our sin. That those sins are then forgiven. That that's all part of God's riches that are lavished of us. And this is the part I do love. Because some of us, when we encounter Christianity, and maybe you've been in churches that have done that and sat in front of preachers, as much as I love the information that we have in the Bible, we'll talk about this later. As much as we have all this stuff, boy, there's still a lot of mystery in our faith. So when everybody, anybody ever tells you, hey, uh, you know, I, I can tell you exactly what the Bible says. Just run because lightning will soon follow because I've spent the better part of my existence in theological studies. And what I've realized is as much as I know, there's so much I don't know and will never comprehend. Because all of this stuff, how does this work? You know, I can tell you what it is. I, I can't explain all of this just because it's mysterious. That's what the God of creation does. How does he do it? Through Jesus. And this final thing that we see here, Paul says, you know what that does? That unites heaven and earth. So Artemis is in the temple. That's where she stays. The God of the universe who built everything right here, not one of many gods, the God, 
He's uniting that through Jesus. So you have access to the creator of the world because of him. So what is going on here in verses 6 through 10, Paul is trying to say, hey, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, all of this is the umbrella under which rests verse 5. So if you see that there, I'm going to repeat it, is that in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus. If you've been in any church, that word predestined just is that blinking light. And I want you to pause for a minute. I'm going to get to that, so don't think I'm avoiding it. So we will end up at this. But I want you to focus on another word in that, sept- in that sentence, the word adoption. The word adoption. Now, we today get this concept of adoption, right? Uh, some of you have been adopted, right? Maybe some of you are in the process of adopting yourselves. We understand what that means. In the ancient world, actually, the similarities were incredible. Because understand that if you were adopted, even in the time that Paul wrote, when you were adopted into the family, and this is something, by the way, adults could be adopted too, which is how I want to set this up. Because I need some of you to adopt me. Because I need in on the gravy train of money. But anyway, adoption though, as a kid, brought you into the family and you had every right and privilege in, of the family by being adopted. Okay, But I am telling you that Paul didn't just use a term that they understood. He used a term that the people in Ephesus knew incredibly well. And in order to show you this, I have to go back to the map. Because at the map, we're going to see this little circle. So I showed you Ephesus. You see the port city front over there. This area right here is a mountain. And circled right there is a little white area. And that was the garbage dump for Ephesus. And just to show you the effect, remember I showed you this amphitheater right here? Okay, here's that amphitheater right there. That's a picture. And what we couldn't see on the map is that it's a huge mountainous hill. Okay, so you complain about taking the garbage out if you're in an apartment to the back. You complain about taking your cans out down the end of the driveway. Their garbage dump was on the other side of the mountain. It sucks, right? You're like short straws to take out the garbage. So if you had something of refuse, you would, you know, make that trip. Or there were probably services that people did it that, you know, garbage people existed back then. But here's the deal. On the other side of the hill where the dump existed, you would find all manners of garbage. But this too. You would find abandoned children. Which seems foreign to us. Or maybe it doesn't. And that's actually why in the news, whenever a baby is found in a dumpster or something like that, That's why it's so scandalous. It's like, how does this happen? You have to understand in the ancient world, this was called exposure. And this process was widely accepted. You know, one of the reasons it was accepted so widely is because the um, twin sister of Artemis was Apollo. Right? If you remember your gods, Apollo. Apollo actually had sons that were exposed and abandoned himself. And by the way, this stretches within mythology too. The idea of child abandonment, that if you didn't want your baby, right? Or you didn't want, as old as toddler people, if you didn't want that baby, you could take it to the dump and leave it. And it was like, it was all good. And by the way, bringing that just imagery, and maybe this will change your morning runs through Eden Park or whatever, but we know the mythology of Romulus and Remus, or if you've seen this bizarre statue and you're just like that was more disturbing than artemis like what are these two kids doing right here 
If you know your mythology, that is the narrative of the founding of the city of Rome, that two kids were left out exposed, and the wolves came and tended to them. It's like the demented jungle book, right? But here's the thing. Within the ancient world, in the first century, in the time of Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, that was what happened. It's like, hey, you can take your kid, leave it in the dump, and if the gods permit it, if it's a good day, then the animals will take care of the children, and if they live, then they're special, right? So again, it seems so unfathomable to us that this would ever happen, but this was the basis of their religion and belief. Children were abandoned in the garbage dump. This is the beautiful part of it that early Christian community became known, and we have this not in the Bible, but through extra-biblical historical record, what they would do is they would take their hike around the mountain and they would go to the dump to make sure there weren't any babies there. And if there was a baby there, they would take the baby home and they would adopt them and they would raise the baby as part of their family. So that within a generation, this small little church, part of the growth that they experienced with them taking trash babies in and adopting them into their family. Now, what Paul is saying here then, read that verse 5 to yourself again. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus. Paul's doing two things right here. Number one, he's trying to tell you cosmically what's happened. What he's trying to say is that, friends, in the scheme of spirituality, we are the trash heap kids. All of us have been left behind to our own devices for survival. And what did God do? He sent his son to go along and pick us up and take us home. And the beauty thing is, is that Paul is using this as an illustration to talk about the people in Ephesus who did the very same thing. So it's his way of saying, this is what it looks like when a mosaic is formed in the church. But it's also to affirm with us is that this is what God is doing with us. It's what he's doing with us. Do me a favor, Chris. And I'm on a little delay right here because we're coming through. We're going to read the next verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Again, all these churchy words, and then if you've been around the church, you say, hey, there's predestined again. Like, this is coming through. So I'm going to talk about predestined, but let me stop and really tell you where he's going. It's kind of funny. This is one of the few texts in the Bible. Usually what I do when you're teaching somebody through the scriptures, you look at what's said, you tell them what it means, and then you try to go with it. Because of the popularity of this, I have to say, this is what it really means, and this is what people think it means, and we need to diffuse this. So what it really means is just this, is that this God who is doing this, he knows you. It's not like Artemis that you have to go and beg her to do something in your life to make your life better. This God knows you, and this God is going to last. He's going to be there for you. Okay? The temple of Artemis does not exist anymore. We have a column. God, enthroned in the heavens, still does. And that's the transformative aspect about who he is. That's basically what Paul is saying here. Is that, look, you're putting your hope in Christ, not in Artemis. And I'm going to let you know this. That God, he ain't going anywhere. 
It's not like you are putting your faith in something that's short-lived. It's not like, again, Artemis later became known as Diana because of the way that the Romans tried to rename the Macedonian gods. And it, it, it worked out that, you know, again, many of you, maybe even before, before coming in here today, never even heard of Artemis. But we live in a world today where people at least have a familiarity with Jesus and who he is. And that is something that is supposed to be affirming to these people who lived 2,000 years ago. This isn't going to stop. It's going to keep going. Okay, that's what it means. But you don't care what it means because you keep seeing this concept of pre-de- you know, predestined. And this is like churchy talk right here. So I'm going to get a little deep and I'm going to bring everybody with us just so that we can talk about this. Because I believe this is an important topic that many of us grapple with. Known as determinism or predestination or Calvinism. It's a system of how we view God working and moving in the world, right? And by the way, these are beliefs that different Christians hold to. And it comes down to a concept of God that we find in the Bible, and I'm going all theological terms on you, but stick with me. It's a term called sovereignty. And you can see within that, that term of sovereign, and you can even see the etymology of the word reign in there, because it's supposed to be a royal term, right? The idea of a royalty's uh, ability to rule effectively. And throughout the scriptures, we see this motif that God is likened to a king a king who has dominion over everything. You know, we, we, we sing about that, that he's the king of the universe, the creator of all things, right? So God is sovereign. So this is where the tension comes, is when we try to apply our logic to the Bible, okay? So stick with me. Because then you're like, wait, if God is sovereign and he made everything, therefore he's like running all the remote controls, that God's like some you know, like more, better organized wizard of Oz behind the curtain, just shifting little things so that uh, everything that I do in life is determined. You know, so that a choice that I make about a, a, a mate or a job or a move, that all these things, even though I'm trying to, you know, figure it out, really God's in control of all of it. So my job is to find out what God's path is and to find my way on that path, Right? And many of you have struggled with this spiritually because you believe that, okay, so there's this path that God wants me on, but what's your fear? What if I'm on the wrong path? If I'm on the wrong path and it's not working out well. And that's why a lot of people like to cling to a deterministic, a predestined idea because it's like, okay, if God's moving all this, then all I have to be is do a good, be a good Christian and God's going to make that happen and it'll just be like autopilot. You know, it will, it will be the Tesla of my life, Right? Like, that's what some of us hope for, but then other of us find tension within that. It's like, no, because I know I sit and I wrestle with decision makings. And and even though, and and the problem that we have with this is that there's scripture verses that you can take and throw against a wall out of context, right? Like, I find this in Isaiah 46 that, you know, God says, I tell this bird where to go. I tell this guy to do what I say to do. And it's like, aha, God is telling me everything, which isn't, I don't even have time to go into Isaiah 46. That's not the point of this at all. But what we do is we try to take our logic, apply it to that and develop systems around that. So the question that comes to you and I is, is God really sovereign or do we have a choice to determine the outcome of our lives? And the answer is yes. Yes. And you're like, wait a second, what did he ask again? Basically, I'm telling you something that is paradoxical. And that's why I want to go back to that concept. Did you see a major aspect of what we talked about, Paul said here, is it's the mystery of God's will? Understand this. You're like, wait, it can't be both and. It can for God, right? You and I don't operate 
on this multi-dimensional world. Has any Trekkies been going through, you know, your marathon at the 50th anniversary of this? Like, I turned some of it on. I don't, like, are there any Star Trekkies here? Okay, thank you, Anne-Marie. Good. Okay, here's the deal. Is that the reason people usually like Star Trek is that it is this... Um, it is this kind of conversation all over again. What Gene Roddenberry wanted to do was talk about these philosophical issues in outer space, right? And that's why in some of these different science fiction things, they come into multidimensionals. Interstellar, anyone? That's my, my gig. Anybody like an interstellar? It's like this idea, black holes, right? You're like, how does this all make sense? I'm telling you, this is the thing about God's realm, is that we try to apply our logic upon him. God created time. He's above time. You know, that's why we can't comprehend eternity because you're like, this sermon is taking forever. And the only reason you know it's taking forever is because you understand time as a linear concept. God created that. He operates above this. So for us to try to say, this is exactly how God's work, it doesn't work that way, folk. So this is what I tell people pastorally, because in my two decades or so of ministry, the question I'm always asked over and over again is what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? Tell us, preacher. That's your job. You tell me, and then I'll do what you tell me, and that is good Christian living. It's not. And this is how I try to explain it, friends. You and I, every day, have choices and decisions that we have to make, right? And our decisions, then, are, and I'm trying to get this to go. We're still computing. There we go. Our decisions are are, are basically funneled through the will of God. And you'll notice on this little slide that I put together, there's a couple lines on either end. And friends, those lines are basically the bookends of where God's will resides. So as I'm trying to illustrate here, there are multiple paths of God's will for your life. If you're like, wait, does God want me to move to Minneapolis where it's really flipping cold? You know, is that what he's calling me to do? That might be a totally ridiculous choice, but it doesn't mean it's outside of God's will. Preach. It doesn't mean that it's outside of God's will because God could also have called Chris to stay right here in Cincinnati. He might bring him back someday or he might send him overseas. And all of those things can be permissible. But the reason that they're permissible is that they're located between the borders. Friends, where we're outside of God's will is when we make decisions that transcend the borders. So you're like, how do I know the borders? This is very simple. That's coming back to verse 1, which is the authority of the scriptures. That's why we Christians are big Bible people. Because we believe that God has given us some outlines. But at the same time, understand this. It's not as rigid as you want it to believe. Because there's a lot of latitude within here. The provisions outside of this is don't sin. Don't sin. And anything within those sinful parameters, everything in the middle is good. So if you're like, hey, I want to do, I I feel called to create a business that is going to make me a multimillionaire. That doesn't, it's like, well, is, is being rich evil? No, it's not. So if that's what God is calling you to do, go see. The same way if God's calling you to sell everything and live on the streets, can that be within God's will? Totally. But if God's calling you to be, you know, like, I, I feel my call is to become a professional mercenary and to kill people for money. That is outside of the parameters of sin. And therefore, I'm going to tell you, I just crushed somebody's dream this morning. Like, I feel I'm so good. I could be such a good mercenary. Like, my finger, I got good eyes. You know, like, that's outside, and therefore that's where we exist. The problem is, friends, that is freedom. And as much as we are Americans, 
as much as it's a day that, you know, 9-11 has become this patriotic holiday more so than anything because we value this nation, right? But we have to understand that within all this, even though we value freedom, friends, many of us just do not want to operate under that. Some of you don't want to follow Jesus because you think it limits your freedom. Other of you are following Jesus, but you don't want the freedom because you don't want to have to make a decision for yourself. And you have to figure out where you are on that spectrum and come to realizing that there's a lot here. The problem that you and I have with that is that we, we believe like there's, there's got to be something out there for me, that this is what God is calling you to do. More so, friends, if you sow God or your life into what God is doing, then you're going to find yourself fulfilled regardless of any path that you take. Does that make sense? So stop trying to find fulfillment and finding God's path for you and make that path God's path for your life. So every day you wake up, you'd be like, this is what I'm called to do. Maybe it's right now, and you might be like, no, trust me, you don't know where I work. I'm not called to do that. Okay. But maybe you're called right now to be the best person you can be in that context. Maybe God's going to use that to somersault your career to a next level. Maybe he's going to use that to introduce you to a person that's going to transform your life. If you make God's will where it is, it's going to transform the way that you view the world. Okay, and that's what, what, it's not even what Paul was trying to tell these people. That's how we have interpreted what he's saying. What he's basically saying is this, is that you and I are these little pieces. And as we come together to form something, more cognizant in our minds ought to be that we have a will together with other people. That's the church. That's what Paul is writing together. He wants to see how the little pieces, not just how your little piece sticks on a wall, but how does that engage with the people around you? And what does that form? What kind of picture does this form? It's why we're really big. <laughs> it's why we have a church. It's why we're here. The church is not for any one individual. It's for all of us to come together to see what does a beautiful mosaic look like on the opposite end of this that can transform life. And that's what, as we go through this book and we start to see what God is doing, I just want to challenge you to just really find out um, where his will is. And there's lots of places you can try to find that, but I'm telling you, in this community, I think it's a good place to do it. And you can do it along with other people too. But we don't do this for any other purpose because it brings us back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about that good news, the gospel that we listed over there. It's all about his transformation in my life. When my life's different, then I see other people different and that's how we live together. And that's something that we do every week as a church, is we celebrate communion. And some of us, uh, if we have a church background, we're very familiar with it. You know, if something that we decide to do every week, and the reason that we do this every week is because it connects us to Jesus and this message. Every week we have a tangible reminder of the cross and what defines us. So that when I'm struggling from week to week, figuring out, okay, am I, am I really doing God's will? It brings me back to the cross, and then I can become just certain that I'm pouring myself into him. And then as I go out the rest of my week, I'm reminded, I'm reminded God loves me. I'm reminded that Jesus did something amazing for me. We eat the bread and drink the cup because it reminds us of the cross. One of the most self-sacrificial acts in human history done for all of us. So it's how we celebrate. It's how we are going to conclude this time today. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you. We're going to pass the trays around, take a piece of bread, grab a cup. When you feel led, eat and drink. Let's just remember the cross. If you're not comfortable with that, just pass the tray along. It's, that's totally fine. We're just going to use a few minutes of just reflection 
to think about God, to think about Jesus, and to think about how that changes us. So I'll pray, and then we'll have communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for that church in Ephesus, Father. Because as much as um, many of us are out seeking the will of God, they saw opportunity in children abandoned, and they took them in, and they were adopted. And Father, that resonates with us in multiple ways, but mostly spiritually as we recognize that we were abandoned and you sent your son to the trash heap to pick us up to hold us, to bring us into the family. And that's why together we celebrate this communion. We thank you for his life, his perfection that he uh, approached this world with, the uh, unfair death that he went through all for us. Because of your great love for us, he died. And as we eat and drink, we remember his body and blood and we remember you now. Thank you for the cross in his name. Amen.